But you said you were a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, shall we, shall we start? Let's get going. Okay, okay. So, hi everyone and welcome to the first episode of Scotonomics. This evening, we're starting a journey to discover how the economy really works and provide some nourishment for independent minds. Every second Wednesday, we hope you can join myself and William as we delve into the details of our modern economy, because we all know that something is wrong with the way that the economy currently works. In this show, we will pose challenging questions to leading economists from across the globe as we explore the myths and, in many cases, the outright lies um, that govern our lives in a modern, post-gold standard economy. So, William, how is it in Barcelona this evening? Uh, it's very nice. You can see, you can see that I'm a little bit sunburnt from uh, being out on my bike the last couple of days. So it's, uh, summer's definitely here. Um, it's really nice. Uh, how about you? How is Scotland at the moment? I'm really well, and Scotland is lovely at the moment. I am a wee bit nervous, as most of the show is live. Happily, you have a lot more experience in front of the webcam than I do, so I know that you can guide us through our first few episodes. Yeah, I'm happy to take control for these first few episodes, pressing all the buttons um, on the back end and bringing in all the comments as well um, from our uh, for, from our audience. So um, let's tell us a little bit about the topic we've got tonight, and then we can get going. Okay, so as it's our first show, we took a lot of time thinking about the topic to kick off the series, and I think we've settled on the right one. Tonight we take a look at sovereignty, specifically the concept of sovereignty for a medium-sized country like Scotland. Yeah, I definitely think that's the best place to start. We've got so many things that we're planning to talk about, but that's definitely the best place to start this brand new show. So, well, tonight we are really lucky to have Professor Fidel Kaboob, who is an advisor to Modern Money Scotland. Fidel is originally from Tunisia and is an Associate Professor of Economics at Denison University, Ohio. And he is also President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. So, William, let's hear from Fidel and what he has to say about sovereignty. And we will do. I'll just to remind the audience at any point if you want to drop your comments or any kind of questions or anything you want in the chat, and hopefully we can have a little bit of a discussion uh, while we listen to this fantastic interview. So over to Fidel. So my, my first question to you, and this is, I specifically wanted to get you on to talk about this, is what is fiscal and what is monetary sovereignty? So uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me on, uh, on this program. Um, so the, the MMT approach or modern monetary theory approach uh, highlights the importance of monetary sovereignty. And monetary sovereignty means um, different countries have different degrees of monetary sovereignty. Some countries don't have any monetary sovereignty whatsoever. And those countries are the countries that use a foreign currency. In other words, their government is simply a user of a foreign currency. Right now, Scotland would be uh, a good example of this. The currency that you use is issued by a, 
a foreign entity, you can say. Ecuador is a country that also has no monetary sovereignty because it decided uh, a while ago to use the U.S. dollar as its uh, currency. So that means those countries that use a foreign currency are simply like you and I, consumers and businesses and, and nonprofit organizations. We're users of a national currency, which means that we have to earn it in order to be able to spend. And if we wanted to spend beyond our income, we have to borrow it from somebody. And once we do that, we have a debt. And that's a real financial burden that we need to pay off at some point, either by working harder, earning more income, or reducing our spending, or doing both, working harder and reducing our spending, meaning austerity type of uh, policies. So the the entities that don't have to operate like users of the currency, like you and I, are issuers of a national currency because they're not financially constrained. So now the question becomes for those national entities, the issuers of sovereign currency, does that mean they have an infinite capacity to spend? Absolutely not. Of course, they can create as much money as they want, but it doesn't mean they should flood the system with cash. So what constrains a sovereign issue of a currency in terms of the spending is the actual risk of inflation, which from an MMT perspective, that risk of inflation is determined by two major uh, sources. One is the lack of productive capacity. In other words, if a country runs out of skilled people, machinery, equipment, natural resources, and it still wants to spend more and create more demand for those resources, of course, it's going to cause inflation. The second source of inflation, which I think is even more important, is what I call uh, abusive price-setting behavior. When you have key entities in the market, whether it's uh, health insurance companies or real estate companies or financial institutions or broadband internet service providers, these are entities that in, in many cases have a high degree of market concentration, which means they can raise prices simply because they can or simply because we let them, because they're deregulated. And that type of inflation is not going to go away by spending less or by imposing austerity. That type of inflation only goes away if you tax and regulate that market power out of existence. In other words, if you democratize and make those markets more competitive. The first source of inflation is easier to handle in the sense that when we have a shortage of productive capacity, it gives us the opportunity to actually ramp up production because capacity is producible. So we can train more doctors, we can train more nurses, we can build more hospitals, and it happens to create millions of jobs depending on the size of the economy. So these are the, the major sources of inflation. And the more democratic and competitive the economy and the system is, the more potential we have to expand productive capacity without increasing market concentration, which means we are able to push that risk of inflation further and further away, which means we can increase the potential for prosperity without having to kind of sit on our hands and say we have to impose austerity to avoid the risk of inflation. So that changes the analysis fundamentally between uh, 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 the national government and its capacity to create wealth for the country versus a local municipality or a local region within a country. And to go back to your initial question, which is the status of, of Scotland right now, 
is the equivalent of a, a district or a municipality or a, or a state within the United States. So the equivalent of the state of Ohio, which is where I live. The state of Ohio can't issue its own currency. It's a user of the U.S. dollar. So it must tax the local residents in order to spend, and it needs to borrow in order to spend on infrastructure and, uh, and whatever the state uh, needs, which means our debt as a state is a serious financial burden that we, the residents of the state, have to pay for by paying more taxes in the future, spending less, and, and so on. That's vastly different from what the federal government in the U.S. can do. So in, in your case, the U.K. government is the sovereign issuer of the British pound, and Scotland is the equivalent of a, of a region or a district or municipality that must operate under sound financial principles. Which raises an interesting question in, in the case of Scotland with all the debates that, um, that you're having uh, over uh, the issue of independence is transitioning to an independent Scotland without acquiring full monetary sovereignty and the capacity to issue a national currency is not, from an MMT perspective, is not true economic independence. You're still, from a financial economic standpoint, you're still going to be a sub-region of the UK uh, government. Yeah, but I, I would also say to you, Fidel, I mean, even from a non-MMT perspective, you would say that, you know, you cannot be, um, uh, you know, you can't really be independent if you're using another country's currency. Um, there was something that you'd said in another podcast that I'd listened to about the fundamental aspects of a country being sovereign as well. So, Obviously, currency is one of those components. What you talked about was we need to be food sovereign and we need to be energy sovereign and we need to have an educated population. Now, I would argue that Scotland has these things in spades. What do you think about that? So it, it's a very basic observation that you can't run an economy without food, without feeding people. You can't run an economy without energy, at least a, Definitely not a, a modern economy that uses a lot of energy for transportation, heating and cooling, and, and industrial production, which is very energy intensive. So these are the, the building blocks of, of any economy. And if a country relies on these imports, then it's, it's always going to be deficient. Uh, the advantage that Scotland has is that it does have food security. It does have energy security. Quite a bit of it is actually renewables in, increasingly. And it does have... Uh, an educated population, meaning a skilled population that can allow the country to specialize in higher value added content manufacturing, which is extremely important because in, in, if, if you're operating in the international economy and you happen to export low value added products and you import high value added products, you're always losing no matter how fast you try to accelerate your exports no matter how fast you try to accelerate your production. So the only way to allow a country to specialize in the higher value-added content is by having the technical skills, the educational skills, the research and development capabilities that allow you to attract higher value-added manufacturing. So in the global economy, you'll find countries that produce capital equipment, innovate, and, uh, and create the high value added products versus countries that specialize in doing the assembly line type of work, 
meaning they buy all the inputs, they buy all the intermediate components and capital, they even import the energy to fuel the, the, the assembly lines, and they simply add low-cost labor, meaning racing to the bottom at the lowest cost possible to assemble those products for re-export, usually in the global north. So Scotland has the advantage of being placed um, in terms of uh, on the higher end of that scale in terms of skills and technical capabilities. So it has all the right components to be a really successful, thriving, independent economy with its food security, with its energy security, and with its educational and research and development and technical capabilities to have the right kind of mix of economic uh, factors to thrive uh, independently. Um, fundamentally, it seems to me for an advanced economy, where your advanced economy really wants to be going is that you do not want to be exporting potatoes and buying televisions. So right. happily, we are not in that situation, although we do, we, are, uh, we do export a lot of food from Scotland as well. I think the key word that you just uh, said earlier is resilience. I think that's the key thing for, for any, especially for smaller countries uh, in, in general. Resilience includes food security, includes energy security, and in, includes from an economic standpoint, resilience to external shocks. And those external shocks hurt the most when it comes to food and energy, actually in medical services, medical needs. I'll, I'll give you an example. Many developing countries, because they have these weaknesses in terms of food security, energy security, and high dependence on imported technology, especially medical technology and medicine in, in general, Every time there is an external shock to their economy, meaning a, a substantial decline in their export revenues, a substantial decline in tourism revenues, a substantial decline in foreign direct investment into a country, typically what happens is that the value of that currency falls relative to the dollar, relative to the euro, the British pound, which means with the weaker currency, everything you import, whether it's food or medicine or fuel, is now imported at a higher relative price, which means you're literally importing inflation. And that means your consumers will be facing uh, expensive food, expensive transportation costs, expensive energy costs, and expensive medical treatment costs, which in most countries translates into social unrest, especially food. We have food riots all over the world when these things happen. So as a result, those governments, in order to avoid that social unrest, in order to avoid the economic pain for the most vulnerable people, those governments step in and artificially fix their exchange rate at a higher level so that everything they import is affordable to their consumers, especially basic food and energy. So the way to fix the exchange rate artificially is by borrowing US dollars or euros or British pounds or Japanese yen. In other words, you accumulate what we call external debt debt denominated in foreign currencies. And that takes a sovereign government that issues its own government from a high degree of monetary sovereignty to a lower degree of monetary sovereignty because that external debt needs to be paid at some point in the future. So of course this accumulates year after year, decade after decade because most countries have these structural weaknesses that persist in many cases since colonial times and then post-colonial times. So this is a long-term structural problem. So now you have a systematic approach to public policy 
that prioritizes external debt payments because you can't default on your external debt because you need to borrow more in the future because you have that structural weakness. So now you set your priorities based on the things that will allow you to continually make the payments on time so that you can borrow at an affordable rate moving forward. So now you're thinking like a household. You're thinking, how do I earn this income in foreign currency reserves in order to pay my bills on time and not lose the house and not lose you know, access to financial resources? So I'll give you an example. Now you have to prioritize um, industries and areas of the economy that exclusively generate dollars and euros. So tourism becomes an important thing. Um, uh, Export-oriented industries become uh, incentivized and prioritized. And for countries that have energy deficiency and food uh, lack of food security, the more tourists you bring in, the more food you have to import, the more energy you have to import for those tourists to transport them, house them, heat and cool the buildings for them. So it becomes f- a further trap. And of course, tourism, you're not the only country competing for tourists. There's a hundred some other beautiful countries with great people and great food and great places to visit. So all of those developing countries are racing to the bottom, lowering costs, subsidizing food, subsidizing energy, just for the sake of attracting more tourists. And it looks like a solution because it's, it is creating jobs in the tourism industry. It is bringing foreign currency reserves, but it's also bleeding foreign currency reserves and bleeding in terms of food security and energy security. So it's not a sustainable solution. I'll give you another example from my own home country, Tunisia, related to agriculture. Because we're so obsessed with earning euros and dollars to pay for the external debt, we have an agricultural policy that actually weakens food security as opposed to increases it. So we allocate the most uh, precious water resources in, in a country that experiences significant droughts and we allocate the most fertile land to producing things like strawberries, which are not really needed for food security because it's an export commodity to Europe. And instead, we have lack of food security and basic staples like wheat and barley, which we have to import from the Ukraine and Russia and Australia and other places at prices that fluctuate constantly and fluctuate upwards in, in the opposite direction we want them and cause even more food insecurity in the country. So had we had food security, energy security, had we had a stronger degree of monetary sovereignty, we would allocate our natural resources in the most effective way, which is produce for food security as opposed to produce for whatever Europe needs, in this case, strawberries. Um, So I can go on with many, many other examples. So uh, I, I always say, you know, first focus on building the food security, energy security, and and the basic needs for the country. But at the same time, make sure that you're not handing monopoly power or oligopoly power in the hands of key players who will actually hijack that sovereignty from you. When we look at sovereignty, it's around control. And how much sovereignty does a small nation have now in a globalized world, even if it is a currency issuer and it's in control of those other three areas? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, an interesting example is to look at Singapore, which is even, you know, a, a smaller uh, nation with very limited uh, amount of natural resources, 
But because it's specialized in higher value-added content of manufacturing, because they prioritize educational technical training, and because they also operate in an open global economy, they didn't close their economy to protect it. So they're able to compete internationally and attract investment and attract, you know, the, the highest end uh, type of, um, you know, international partnerships. And they were able to do it without causing a real estate bubble. So housing is affordable for the people of Singapore because of government regulation. Had they let that be, you know, set by market conditions, they would have experienced the highest, you know, real estate bubble in, in the region and extremely unaffordable housing prices. So the size doesn't really matter. What matters is what is the economic strength and capabilities and what is the legal framework within which you operate. Um, and, and it's a country that has a sovereign currency uh, and it's a country that has a, a highly regulated financial system so that it doesn't lead to excessive concentration of power within a particular industry. It's, it's by no means the, the utopian government or utopian nation, but it, it goes to show you that you can have a very small country with very limited uh, uh, real natural resources, but it has the economic capabilities and foundations and regulatory framework to safeguard the quality of life for, for their citizens and, and residents. Could, could one of the concerns of Scotland leaving the United Kingdom would be that it's leaving a big economy with a lot of bargaining power within international trade agreements. And if it becomes an independent country and it's smaller, it's not going to have as much of a clout in terms right. of negotiating and, and trade deals. And obviously, the less clout means less power, which means less sovereignty. Very good question. So I, I work with the, the number of, of very small developing countries that have all kinds of structural weaknesses. And, and this is a major question that they ask too. It's, we have a, a sovereign currency, but we're trying to build a higher degree of monetary sovereignty. And, and for me, the answer is always the following. You can only bargain for more if you actually have a certain degree of resilience. So you can actually bargain. Otherwise, you have nothing on the table to bargain with. And that usually means, at minimum, your food and energy security. Because if your people are going to starve the next morning, you can't really bargain. If, if your economy is going to be shut down, no access to energy, you can't really bargain. So you're going to give them whatever they want, which means your entire economic policy is going to be steered from abroad. You're simply, even if you have a ministry of industry, your ministry of industry has no industrial policy. Because your industrial policy is being determined by the FDI nations, by the countries who are importing from you. They tell you what they want you to produce, and you just have to do it because you have no other choice. So having a certain degree of resilience allows you to actually have a stronger bargaining position in international trade. So it's really not about the size of your economy. It's about whether you can walk away or not. Because if you can sit at the negotiation table and say, well, this trade deal doesn't work for us, we're going to go home and we're going to be fine. Our people will be fed, our universities will be running, and our economy will be functioning. You're not really losing in that negotiation. But if walking away, away from that negotiation table and not taking a trade deal means you're going to have food riots the next morning, you're not going to walk away. You're going to accept whatever trade deal you're getting. So the the stronger resilience to these external pressures you have, the stronger your bargaining position. Because then 
your international trade negotiations don't always have to go with the United States or Japan or the biggest economies. You can actually use your strategic position as a resilient economy, as a resilient nation, to partner with dozens of other countries who actually don't have that resilience and who would be more than happy to work with you as long as you work in a strategic partnership with them so that you have mutually reinforcing resilience trade partnership so that Scotland can use its strategic advantage in the energy industry to help dozens of other countries who want to acquire that degree of uh, resilience. They, they, Scotland can use its advantage in agricultural uh, resilience to help dozens of other countries who are willing to bargain for something that you want as long as you help them achieve a higher degree of resilience. And the more of these coalitions of smaller and global South countries you build, the stronger the negotiation power you're going to have internationally as, as Scotland or as countries in the global South in, in general. And, and this has been the problem in international trade negotiations for the last, uh, you know, 50 years at least, which is, you know, the dominant countries like the U.S., like the European Union, establish the rules and exclude uh, food in particular <laughs> from from those negotiations. That's been the, the biggest problem for developing countries. Mm -hmm. the, the, the cap, uh, the common agricultural policy of, of the EU has destroyed agriculture in the global south and, and Africa in particular because the former colonies used to be the breadbasket for Europe. <laughs> but after independence, it became a position of power for these newly independent developing countries. And it became a strategic weakness for Europe because Europe didn't have food security. While CAP was designed to reintroduce food security in, in the European Union, and as a result, completely destroy agriculture and farming in, in the global south and make the global south food dependent. Uh, so these things actually matter enormously, um, which is why during those trade negotiations, the GATT trade negotiations, which eventually led to the WTO creation, they used to say free trade in everything but arms and farms. So weapons <laughs> off the table and farms off the table because that's food security, that's national security. Um, so it's, it's very clear that the, the stronger, you know, more uh, influential countries completely recognize the importance of food security. They just don't want it for other countries. <laughs> if you can't feed your people, you can't negotiate for anything. You can't walk away from negotiating tables. Um, and if, of course, if you can't run your economy with, uh, with energy, you, you can't walk away from the negotiation table. If you don't have, you know, public health, uh, resilience and security. You can't walk away from a negotiation table because you need things for your survival. But you can walk away from a negotiation table for other things as long as you have the resilience to withstand those negotiations and withstand potential clashes in, in international trade. So I, I think we've, we've kept you for long enough. It's, I, I could always ask you lots more questions, but I think that's enough also for our first show as well. So um, I just want to thank you again, Fidel, for coming along and being with My us. Pleasure. And I know that you've just, you just gave a lecture, I think, before you did this interview. I'm sure you've got to go back to work soon as well. So, <laughs> thanks um, so much, Fidel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank along. you very much.
So that was a really interesting interview and there was a lot of information to take from that. And we want to thank Fidel again for agreeing to be our first guest. William, I thought Fidel brought up very interesting points about degrees of sovereignty, resilience and about his home country, Tunisia. Mm. Also Singapore, that was also interesting. But perhaps for me, the most important thing that came up were the forms of resilience to external changes or shocks and how resilience can secure a country's sovereignty. Also, how domestic resilience equals bargaining power. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, we've, we've also added some graphics to two of the areas Fidel covers, and that's how resilience Scotland is in terms of energy security and our technological industries and our really excellent universities, which punch way above our population's weight. However, perhaps we didn't cover the most important area, which is food security. And I would like to talk more about that before we move on tonight. What do you think, William? Uh, yeah, food security, I think that'd be a brilliant thing to cover. And Fidel said, you know, at the GATT negotiations, it was no arms or farms. And I think that shows how important food security is. And it's certainly really topical because of all the kind of trade deals that are being done and what's happening with Brexit. And I'd love to hear from the audience. You know, we've gone through how, uh, and, and we're seeing it in the chat already, we've gone through how powerful we feel in terms of energy, uh, our natural resources, and also our education. But I wonder how people feel about Scotland's sort of sovereignty in terms of food. Because we know that we create, a lot, you know, we produce a lot of food, but... Crucially for me, we're not in charge of how we trade that food. Those decisions are made in Westminster. And I'd love to know how people are feeling about the trade deals that are being done at the moment, because we're in a position where what Westminster does with our farming, our, our agriculture, our fisheries is hugely important and it could really weaken the resilience of the country. How do you feel, Kieran, about that? Yeah, I, I find that quite distressing. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's clearly distressing for the farming community as well. Um, yeah, I, it, it's just terrible. I mean, it's also a terrible blow, um, you know, after the fishermen and, and how they feel about their industry just now as well. So, yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a worry. Our food sovereignty is of great concern right now, I think. Yeah, and we've got a couple of comments coming through. Um, someone's mentioned about Scotland's uh, water security, and I think we could probably drop that as a, as a completely separate issue. And interestingly, Singapore, um, which was the example that Fidel mentioned, has no kind of water security at all, and that is a big concern for, for their sovereignty. But that's certainly something, one thing we don't lack <laughs> is no, water, we that's for sure. 90% of the UK's freshwater supply here in Scotland yeah. and it arrives it arrives every week uh, from the <laughs> from the heavens um, I'm just going to uh, I'm just put you on screen and I'll just kind of have a look at the um, the questions again I had a really interesting question I don't want you to spend too much time on this because we're going to actually do an MMT edition but someone says MMT sounds quite good it's got a lot of things but how do we get this in front of the SNP to say this is maybe something that you want to think about so brief thoughts on that because I know this is part of the plan yeah well if the audience don't know this I am a member of the SNP I'm on the policy development committee so yeah we're we're busy with that and also this program is part of promoting the idea of fiscal and monetary sovereignty as opposed to using 
the pound or or the euro. Um, I would really like to see my country have complete monetary and fiscal sovereignty. Great. It's the, it's it, this has to be start the, the start of a conversation now, doesn't it? That the, there is a different approach to how we run an economy. And again, mixed mixed thoughts on on M and T in the the chat, which is exactly what we want. You know, we want people who are saying, "What is this? How does it sound? How how would this work?" So it's definitely got to be part of the conversation, and that's certainly something that we hope to to, to bring um, to the the wider independence movement and actually the the wider um, British uh, population as a whole is a little bit more of a, an understanding around the principles of MMT. Uh, so, yeah. please go on. No, I was just going to say that it's really important to maybe to reiterate just quickly that MMT is not policy. <laughs> so it's really important to know it's not a policy. Great. So another couple of comments. Someone was saying that our whiskey was um, sacrificed during Trump's trade war, which I think had something to do with aeroplanes, um, if, if I remember. And, and that did have a big impact. I actually run some, some whiskey stuff and that had a huge impact on the economy. But when we're looking what's happened over the last two years, we can see huge drops in a lot of the um, agriculture, foods and fisheries. So it's definitely something um, to be concerned about. Well, we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, I'd love your feedback on what you've thought of our first uh, episode. And um, before you go, I do want to play you a little clip of our episode two, which is covering our second most important topic after sovereignty, uh, which is how do we deal with national debt? What is national debt? So have a little look at this and then drop some um, comments in the, um, the chat. That'd be fantastic. And I'll just flick through a couple of things here. They are commonly referred to, yes, as government debt. Sometimes people use the misnomer the national debt in the context of uh, the financial liabilities of the of the UK um, government, but they're not debt in the conventional sense of the term. And um, what people regard as the UK government's debt is better thought of as the net money supply in the UK. It's pounds that the currency issuer has spent into the monetary system. They're not taxed back out of the monetary system, which are available for everybody else to hold as their savings, yes. So we're going to be looking at government debt, and part of that is a really interesting discussion around should Scotland pay back, and we've covered again that in the chat, should Scotland pay back this idea, you know, part of the government debt? It was a fascinating conversation that we had just a few hours ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen Hill's really helpful, and he's a professor in Adelaide, Australia. Great. Okay, well, um, just to run a couple of comments we've got. Again, someone said, um, I'm not anti-MMT, just sceptical. And I think there is not... I, I, tell me if I'm wrong, Kieran, right? But I don't think there's anyone who believes in MMT who initially wasn't sceptical. Would you agree? Yes, I think I think most people uh, were sceptical, yeah. But yeah, again, I've got to reiterate, it's not a policy. <laughs> it's, it's not, but it's a fundamentally different way of looking at how the economy works, and that has been difficult for a lot of people. Um, I studied economics at university, so looking at how I, it, it, I think it works now compared to how I was taught is very different, and that's taken a long time to get over that. We've had some great feedback um, uh, in the chat, so really, really appreciate it. 
And the final thing before we go, um, Independence Live is running a conference a week on Saturday, a virtual conference, which we'd love you to think about.